And all of God's people said, amen. Be seated. Back uh, earlier this year, the White House staffer Amarosa um, stepped out of her position and she was on the show The Big Brother and she was commenting about how that those that wanted to uh, impeach President Trump really didn't know what they were getting into because if they impeach President Trump, then they're going to get Vice President Pence. And this is the statement she made. She said, he's extreme. I'm Christian. I love Jesus. But he thinks Jesus tells him to say things. And I'm like, Jesus didn't say that. Scary. These comments were picked up by the ABC show The View, and in that comment that they were discussing in this, Joy Behar made this statement. She said, it's one thing to talk to Jesus. It's another thing when Jesus talks to you. That's called mental illness, if I'm not correct. Hearing voices. To these comments and to these statements, this was... The vice president's response, he said, people of all different faith traditions, they cherish their faith in God. And to have ABC have a forum that spoke in such demeaning terms, I think it's evidence of how out of touch some in the mainstream media are with the faith and values of the American people. He went on to make this comment about Behar's statement. He said that they were an insult not to me, but to the vast majority of the American people who like me cherish their faith. A couple of weeks ago, last week, we uh, had our Roundup Sunday and had a good time together. But the week prior to that, we began uh, a message on uh, Jesus Christ, my cornerstone. And to open that sermon that day, I started with the story about a corporate trainer that asked this question at the beginning of one of his sessions when he said, there are five frogs that are sitting on a log. Four of them decide to jump into the water. How many frogs are left? And the answer to that is five. There's a great big difference between deciding to do something and actually taking that step. And so when you look at the idea of unashamed and you see that over and over and you see that on, on Andy's shirt that he had this morning and those of you that are wearing that, you see unashamed is one way, but then the letter M-E, me. It's a different color. It's showing up a different way because what we're talking about as we are on this journey this year in 2018 about me being unashamed, that is indeed a choice. I have to make that choice. But if all I do is make a choice, then all I am doing is just being a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word. And James says, if that's the way you live your Christian life, then you're an imitator. You're not truly living as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. So we said, what can we put into place to help us evaluate and know whether or not we're living out what we're saying? And so we said the best way would be to look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, because it takes the idea of choice to be unashamed and teaches us how to put into practice those things that would help us to live unashamed. So someone share with me this morning, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, please. Holly, right? Yes, sir. Go right ahead, please. Who can harm you if you prove zealous to do good? For even if you... Should suffer for the sake of righteousness. Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear and do not be intimidated. For in your heart, separate Christ as Lord. And always be ready to make an account. For those who ask for the hope that is in you, <laughs> always keeping a good conscience, for which you are slandered for those 
I'm sorry. And always keep a good conscience so that in that thing in which you are slandered. <laughs> in that thing in which you are slandered. Those who revile your good those behavior. Those who revile will be put to shame. For it is better for it, for it is better to suffer if it, for if it is God's will. I don't know it exactly verbatim. Hey, Holly, thank you very much this morning for doing that for us. Excellent. Excellent job. By step of faith, she stood up there and said, I'm ready to start acting. I may not always get it right, and I may not get every single part, but I'm going to take that step of faith. Who is there among you? What? What's the answer? How's that verse go? Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the very thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you should suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. You see, that's the way we put into action. That's the way that we begin the process. We, we, we choose. I make a choice. Me, I want to live unashamed. I, I want to live in a society. But when I live in that society in which I find myself today, I'm going to run up to the, I'm going to run across the Amorosas. And I'm going to run across those Joy Behars that have something to say about my decision to live as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And if I don't know why I believe what I believe, and if I can't articulate why it is that I believe, then really all that we can say is I must have a mental, is a mental issue because all I can do is just hear voices. No, not only can I hear the voice of God, I can also articulate what God is speaking because his word has been given to me. And so therefore I'm going to make application of first Peter chapter three and verse 15 that says, I'm always going to be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks me. If they ask me when I'm at my job, if they ask me when I'm out playing, when they ask me when I'm in the classroom, when they ask me when I'm in a boardroom, it does not matter. I'm going to be ready at any moment. I'm praying, God, if you'll open the door for me to walk through, I will walk through the door and I will be unashamed. And I will be ready to offer defense to anyone who asks me to give them account for the hope that is in me. But I'm going to do it with gentleness and I'm going to do it with reverence. And that's what we're concentrating on. That's why we've picked up the Baptist faith and message. We've stepped back and we're using this as a springboard into each message each week to help us understand what does the Bible have to say about the cardinal foundational truths on which I base my faith as a Christian and my base as a, as a Southern Baptist. And so, so far we've looked at scriptures because we have to have a foundation. We have to know beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is God's inspired word. It's alive, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It is God breathed, it is God's word that he gave to men to record for us so that we could understand who God was and how to live for him and how to explain him. And then in these scriptures, we study things such as the Trinity, a very hard topic, but something that we need to understand. And then we looked at who God the Father was. And again, two weeks ago, we began to look at who this Jesus is, God the Son. And we began to talk about how that he is our cornerstone. And so if you'll take your Bibles this morning, the book of Hebrews chapter, chapter one, excuse me, we're going to be in verses one through four again. And we're going to continue on this journey of looking at three reasons why Jesus Christ is my cornerstone. The definition of a cornerstone is an important quality or feature on which a particular thing depends or stand. A quality or feature on which something 
stands on? What is its foundation? And what you want to understand this morning is that, is that Christianity, it's not a code. Christianity is not a creed. Christianity is not some kind of a church. Christianity is Jesus Christ himself because he is the cornerstone. Scripture calls him the chief cornerstone. He is the one, uh, he is the quality and feature on which Christianity depends and is based. And so two weeks ago, we looked at the reason why Jesus Christ is my cornerstone. And the first reason was, is because he is the supreme power. Begin reading with me in verse 1. He says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And so we underlined that phrase in that passage of scripture, through whom also he made the world. And what we shared last uh, two weeks ago was that the, the, the Christ of the New Testament is the creator of the Old Testament. The, the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, that, that is born in a, in a manger in Bethlehem. Why we celebrate Christmas, he did not get his beginning there. He is the creator of the Old Testament. How do you know that, Pastor? What can, what, why can you make that statement? Because I go to the scriptures. I go to God's inspired word. I don't go to another human being to articulate. I go to God's word to know. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16, he says, For by him, speaking of Jesus Christ, all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And all things have been created through him, and for him. Well, pastor, that's great. That's Paul's opinion. Was there anybody else's? Yeah, let's listen to what John has to say in John chapter one. John says, all things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. The Christ of the New Testament is the same creator of the Old Testament. So the writer of Hebrews says, and he is the radiance of his glory. So, so Christ, the Messiah, is the radiance of the glory of God the Father and the exact representation of his nature. And then he says, and upholds all things by the word of his power. Because Jesus Christ is the supreme power. He is the one that holds everything together. Because he is the one that holds the universe together because he is the creator. He's the one that can hold our lives together. He can hold our marriages together. He can hold our church together because the, the creator of the, New Te- of the Old Testament is also the Messiah, the Savior of the New Testament. And that's why in Colossians 1.17 it says, He is before all things. Hebrews says he is the same yesterday. Today and forever. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus Christ, he's my cornerstone. He's the foundation on which my faith is built because Jesus Christ is the supreme power. Now let's move into the second and the third reason this morning. And we'll wrap up this understanding of why Jesus Christ is my cornerstone. Reason number two, Jesus is my cornerstone because he is sinless and perfect. He is sinless and perfect. Read with me again in verse 1 of Hebrews 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation 
of his nature. Now, when we studied the Trinity a few weeks ago, what we noticed as we kind of went through that passage of Scripture is that God the Father and God the Son, they are distinct individuals, but at the same time, they're inseparable. God is Jesus and Jesus is God. In verse three of our text, it, it, it supports this assertion. Look, and he, Jesus, is the radiance of his, God the Father's glory and the exact representation of God the Father's nature. Now in the Greek phrase, when you go back and you study that phrase, the exact representation of his nature, that, that's why pastors go to school. That's why they go to seminary. That, that's why they study the original languages so that they can make sure and rightly divide the word of God. And this Greek phrase, the exact representation of his nature, the best way to understand it would be the signet ring of a king. When the king wanted to make sure that everyone understood, I'm the one speaking, whatever that the law was or whatever the decree was, he would take his signet ring and he would press it into some wax. That wax seal was an exact representation of the ring itself so that no one could question whether or not this statement was being made by the king. And, and that design, that, that stamp, it was exactly the way that the king intended for it to be. And so in this passage of scripture, what the writer of Hebrews is trying to help us understand is that Jesus is the perfect personal imprint of God in time and in space. God sits outside of time and space. He is before all things. He will be after all things. He, he does not have a beginning. He does not have an end. He is God. He is outside of our finiteness. But yet Jesus Christ is his representation. Jesus, God, the son. He is the exact representation of God, the father inside of our time and inside of our space. He is the image of the invisible God. That's that, that's that word image in the Greek language. It's our word icon. It, that, that's the word that's used there, a pre precise copy or an exact representation. Jesus is the exact representation of God the Father who is outside of time in the midst of our time. That's why when Jesus was talking to his disciples and he says, it's time for me to go to Jerusalem. It's time for me to offer myself as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. And, and his disciples are asking him questions. And Philip says, well, if you can just let us see the Father... And listen to what Jesus' response is in John 14, 9. He who has seen me has seen the Father. I'm the exact representation of God inside of your time, inside of your space. And then in John chapter 10 and verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father, we are one. And that's why the writer of Colossians, Paul could say, for in him, Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now, pastor, why does that matter? You're making a big deal about this. Why, why does that really matter? Well, here's why it matters. If Jesus is God and he is, listen to me again. If Jesus is God and he is, and God is sinless and perfect and he is, that means that Jesus in our world is sinless and perfect, and he is. Now we're beginning to see why it's such a big deal. 
Because Jesus chose to come into our world and he chose to come into our time and he chose to come into our space and he chose to come into it as fully man and fully God. And as a result, that means that he invaded our space and he invaded our time as 100% perfect without sin and without error. Now we understand the third reason why Jesus Christ is my cornerstone And that is because he's the redeemer of my sins. He's the redeemer of my sins. Go back to our text in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of his, the Father's glory, and the exact representation of his nature. And Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. This earth sits on the axis that it does. The, the seas flow that the way that they do. The moon does what it does. The star, all those things, they are in place by the word because in the beginning, God created. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And the Holy Spirit then hovered over the waters. God was from the very beginning. And God upholds all things by the word of his power. And this Jesus, God, what did he do when he invaded our time? He invaded our space. He came to this earth as a holy, perfect God, fully man, fully God. What did he do? He made purification of sins. Listen to it again. When he, my cornerstone, when he, the Lord Jesus Christ, When he, the creator of the Old Testament, who is also the Messiah of the New Testament, when he came into this place, my time, my space, your time, your space, this earth on which we live, he made purification of sins. Now, we know that's very, very important because we know what the Bible says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. The wages of sin is death. The payment for sin is eternal separation from God. What we're going to receive, because there's none righteous and no, not one, in our humanness, without Jesus invading our time and invading our faith, we're going to, we're going to reap the wages. We're going to reap the payment. We're going to reap what sin deserves. And the wages of sin and what it deserves is death. But there's this free gift and this free gift is of God and that free gift is eternal life and that free gift is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so when when Christ went to the cross, fully man, fully God, when he went to the cross, he took on our sin and he died the death that we deserve to die because the payment of our sin and there's none righteous, no, not one, because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He took the payment of our sin, which is death. He took that upon himself. In addition, he took the penalty of our sin and what we deserve. And because Jesus was the sinless and perfect lamb of God then Jesus alone qualifies to be able to take away the sin that we so rightly have committed and so rightly deserve to be forever separated from him. Well, pastor, how can you be so certain? How how can you be so certain that it was Jesus was the only one that was able to take away? I mean, we talk about this exclusivity of, of, of Christendom where we say Jesus is the only way to eternal life. Pastor, why can we make that statement? 
Why, why can we make the statement when Oprah is sitting there saying, there is no way in the world a loving God would say that Jesus is the only way to eternal life? How can we so boldly say, yes, it's through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone? Well, first and foremost, I can because Jesus said it in John chapter 14 and verse 6. And he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Period. I don't have to go any further. But sometimes people need me, need me to make a defense for the hope that is in me. Let me give you five reasons why I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is exclusively the only way to eternal life. First and foremost, Christ alone was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18, Luke chapter 1 and verse 26. And because he was born of a virgin, and that gave him the opportunity to live a sinless life. You see, the Bible tells us in the book of Romans, it says, wherefore, as through one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed to all for all have sinned. That's talking about original sin that was committed in the Garden of Eden. And at that moment that Adam and Eve made the determination that they were no longer going to follow God. They were not going to bow down to him and do what he told them to do. Then Jesus, then, then God said, what's going to happen is sin is going to enter into the world and you're going to die. At that moment, when sin entered into the world, that sin is now passed to each and every individual through their father. Through the seed of the man that interacts with the egg of the woman, the sin nature of a human being is passed to that individual. Wherefore, as through one man, sin entered into the world, and that sin is going to be passed to all people. It's passed at the time of conception. Conception cannot happen without the seed of the man. And had Jesus Christ been born of a man, then he would not have been born perfect. So therefore, the Bible tells us that when Mary was betrothed, she was engaged. She had never known a man. She was a, a virgin that the Holy Spirit came upon her. He did not have sex with her. He did not treat her in, inappropriately, immaculately, the immaculate conception. To a virgin, he implants the Son of God. That has no humanness as far as man's interaction with him. He has humanness because he takes on the human form because he was born through a virgin. And as a result of that, he begins at the very beginning having the right to be able to pay for my sins. No one else in the history of the world has ever been born of a virgin. It's impossible in our humanness. But it's practical in God's master plan. The second reason Christ alone is it qualifies as our savior is because Christ alone is God incarnate, fully God, fully man. Anselm argued this fact in the 11th century when he said our savior must be fully man in order to take the place of men and die on the cross. There's this teaching out there that says, well, yeah, Jesus can take away our sins, but he wasn't fully man. He was just some kind of spirit. No, he wasn't. And that is not what God said he was. It's important for us to understand that Jesus took on human flesh because he endured the same temptations, but he did not sin. He endured the same persecution, but he did not sin. He endured the same trials and tribulation, but he did not sin because he was fully God, but he was still fully man. Our savior must be fully man in order to take the place of men and to die in their stead. And he must be fully God in order for the value of his sacrificial payment to satisfy the demands of our infinite, holy God. No one else in the history of the world has ever been fully man and fully God. Therefore, Jesus is my Savior. 
The third reason that I'll note for you this morning, Christ alone lived a sinless life. As such, he qualifies as my Savior. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 21, Hebrews 4, 15, Hebrews 7, 23, Hebrews 9, 13, 1 Peter 2, 21. Jesus alone lived a sinless life. When we go to the Levitical code, uh, someone was asking me today or, or this week, they said, Pastor, I'm reading all about this, this sacrificial system in the Old Testament and all that. Man, it just kind of blows me away. How does this fit together? It fits together because the creator of the Old Testament is the Messiah, the Savior of the New Testament. And in Leviticus, you could not bring a, a sacrifice to the temple. You could not bring a sacrifice for the high priest to be able to offer as a forgiveness of your sin unless that sacrifice was perfect, without blemish, had no spot, had no blot whatsoever. And it's a precursor to what Jesus Christ is going to be. When John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, it's not by chance that he says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He's saying, behold, the one that for the last 30 years has lived on this earth, walked among us, talked among us, fully man. We've touched him. We've ate with him. We've talked with him. We've joked with him. We've had fun with him. We've seen all these things with him. And he's fully man, but yet he didn't sin one time. No sin in him whatsoever. Behold, the Lamb of God. He's been proven to be without spot. And as such, he's able to go to the cross and pay for my sin, which means Jesus alone qualifies to be my Savior. There's no other person that's ever lived without sin. Christ alone died a penal substitutionary death, according to Isaiah 53, 4, Romans chapter 3, 21, 2 Corinthians 2, 21, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10. And as such, he alone qualifies to be my savior. What's the wages of sin? Death. What do I deserve? Death. Why do I deserve death? Because there's none righteous, no, not one. But what Jesus Christ was willing to do is he was willing to go to the cross and he was willing to take the wrath of God upon himself. He was willing to take the penalty that I deserved. He was willing to take that on himself so that he could pay a price that I could not pay. He bore my sin and he bore your sins. He bore our judgment on the cross. And as such, Jesus alone qualifies to be my savior. And the fifth reason I'll give you this morning is because Christ alone arose from the dead and is triumphant over sin. Acts 2.22, Romans 4.25, 1 Corinthians 15.3, 1 Corinthians 15.16. And as such... He qualifies to be my savior. I will not tell you that, this, that Jesus was the first person that ever rose again from the dead. First Kings tells us there's people that rose from the dead. The book of John tells us there's people that have risen from the dead. But I'll tell you what, there's no other person but Jesus Christ that rose from the dead and never died again. The only person that ever did that is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. You know what that means? He qualifies as my savior, because he's been triumphant over sin and the death. No one else in the history of the world has been able to do that. Reason number three, Jesus is my cornerstone is because he's the redeemer of my sins. How do I know he's the redeemer of my sins? Because those five areas that I've just shared with you show beyond a shadow of a doubt that he qualifies to be the redeemer of my sin. And Jesus doesn't need our religion this morning. Jesus doesn't need your help this morning. Jesus doesn't need you to figure out what you've got to do to go to heaven. He's already taken care of that. For by grace are you saved through faith. 
For by grace are you saved through faith. It has nothing to do with your works. It has nothing to do with your religion. It has nothing to do with what you do. It's all through Jesus Christ because we are sinners. We're dead in our trespasses and sin. Our righteousness are like filthy rags unto God. There's nothing that we can do to earn salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourself, that is a gift of God. The wages of your sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ your Lord. So your salvation is not a result of works because we are so sin ate up that we'll boast about it. That, that we'll be happy to tell everybody, I'm the reason that I'm going to heaven, but we're not the reason because we didn't live a sinless life. We're not, in, we're not God in human form. We're, we're not, we didn't live a, a resurrected life after we die. And any of those things that we talked about, that is the only way that we can have eternal life. And it should change us. Can I just tell you this morning, if you've truly been changed or saved, it should change you. You can sit here and say, me, I'm unashamed all that you want. Me, I'm unashamed. But if you don't do anything with that salvation, then the Bible says, I'm not sure of your salvation. We don't work for salvation, but our salvation produces work in us. There was this missionary one time I was reading a, I was reading a book and it, she talked about going into this village and this is what she was talking about. She said, I worked with, with, with a people group that, that they didn't know the scriptures. They didn't know the Bible. I had to go in there and teach them step by step by step by step what scripture had to say. And she said, one day I was teaching and there was this teen, rumbunctious teenage boy and he wasn't paying attention and he was being all disrespectful and these kind of things. And I went away and I came back a few days later and his whole countenance had changed. The whole way that he approached life had changed. And so I walked up to him and I said, hey, tell me about what's going on in your life. And he, and he said, when you shared that story about Jesus last week, I realized beyond a shadow of a doubt, that I didn't have to do anything for Jesus. Jesus had done everything for me. And when I accepted that, my life has begun to change. The thoughts that I had that used to never bother me, they bother me now. The things I used to do that used, never used to bother me, they bother me now because I realize what Jesus Christ has done for me from the story that you shared. And he doesn't need me. I need him. Our text says this morning in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification for sin... When he went to the cross as the perfect lamb of God and offered himself, took our wrath, took all those things upon himself. When he went to the cross and made purification of our sin, what does the scripture say that he did? He what? Sat down. You go back into the Old Testament and you study the furniture of the tabernacle. There was never a seat in the tabernacle for the priest to sit down in. There wasn't a seat so that when the, when, the, when the priest finished offering his sacrifices, he would go and sit down. That's never a piece of furniture in the Old Testament. You know why? 
Because those Old Testament priests, they had to continually make sacrifice and make sacrifice and make sacrifice. Matter of fact, they had to make sacrifice for their own sins before they made sacrifice for the peace, people, uh, for the, for the peace of the people because they were continually sinning and continually sinning and continually sinning. And these were just a precursor to what the ultimate sacrifice would do for all of mankind. The same person I was having that conversation with was talking about this deal. He's a, he goes, man, all the sacrifices and all the bloodshed. All, yeah, it just showed us how much we can go over and over and over and over and over and over and offer and offer and offer and offer and offer. It's never good enough. Our sacrifices will never be the finishing product. It'll only be through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And that's why in Hebrews chapter 7, listen to what it says. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Who does not need daily, like those high priests that didn't have a chair to sit in because their job of offering sacrifices never came to an end. They had to constantly be doing it because those sacrifices weren't sufficient. Who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sin and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all when he offered himself up. Jesus Christ is my cornerstone because he's the redeemer of my sins. What did he do after he sat down? He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of his sins, he sat down. That's where my redeemer is today. He's sitting down. But where exactly is he sitting down? He's sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The right hand of the majesty on high, that's the place of power and authority. That's the place of ultimate command. That's the place of ultimate decision making. In other words, what this writer is trying to help us understand is that Jesus Christ is not a king. He is the king of kings. He's not a Lord. He is the Lord of lords. And in that position, seated at the right hand of God the Father, having proven that once and for all, he is the cornerstone. He is the one thing on which all Christianity rests because it is the substance of everything that we have is built upon the fact of who he is, what he has done and what he is doing for us. Because of that fact, he is everything that anybody ever needs. That's what the Bible is trying to get across to us. It uses all these pictures and it uses all of these terms. And, and I love the way that one writer put it to try to help us understand how that Jesus Christ is everything and anything that we should ever want or we should ever need. And this is the way that he put it. To the architect, he's the chief cornerstone. To the astronomer, he's the bride and morning star. To the butcher, he's the lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the world. To the baker, he's the living bread. To the carpenter, he's the master builder. To the diplomat, he's the prince of peace. To the doctor, he's the great physician. To the educator, he's the master teacher. To the electrician, he's the light of the world. To the farmer, he's the lord of the harvest. To the florist, he's the lily of the valley and the rose of Sharon. 
To the geologist, he's the rock of ages. To the horticulturist, he's the true vine. To the jeweler, he's the pearl of great value. To the judge, he's the righteous judge. To the lawyer, he's the great advocate. To the philosopher, he's the wisdom of God. To the publisher, he is good tidings of great joy. To the sculptor, he is the living stone. To the theologian, he is the author and perfecter of our faith. And to the zoologist, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. You see, all of those names that we find in Scripture, they're trying to speak to us to help us understand the sufficiency of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, and how that he can meet all of the needs that we have. And that's why the Bible goes on to say, if you're hungry today, if you're spiritually hungry today, he's the bread of life. If you're spiritually thirsty today, he's the spring of living water. If you're lost, he's the way. If you're blind, he's the light. If you're dying, he is the life. He can offer and meet you exactly where you are because he's proven once and for all that he is the chief cornerstone. He is the one on which all these things called Christianity is built upon because there's no other name given above heaven or on earth or under earth that gives us the opportunity to have a relationship with God for all of eternity than the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And do you know the message that Billy Graham preached every single time that he got into the pulpit since the 1950s? That message right there. You know, Friday, they had a a small, intimate family gathering at his library in Charlotte, North Carolina for his funeral. And only, you know, about 2,300 of his favorite people were invited to attend the funeral. Small, intimate Wednesday, he, he, he lay in, he, he doesn't lay in state. He wasn't the, he's not a dignitary from the standpoint of political. So he lay in honor. That's what they said at the rotunda in the U.S. Capitol. The Washington Post did, a, uh, did an article, surprisingly. They are not a conservative-leading newspaper. And they did this article on his life. And in that, they interviewed one of the ladies that was attending the uh, the viewing there in the Capitol, and her name, um, her name was Sue Brenner. And they asked, they asked Sue why she was there, and this is the statement that she made. She talked about how that, that uh, back in the 60s, she was on a college campus, and, and a guy invited her to one of the movies that the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association had put together, and, and this is what she said about this. She said, I watched that movie, and I found out I could have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Somehow I had missed that growing up in a Protestant church. I always saw God as a scary, vengeful, angry person. That you could actually have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I was blown away. During that time, other people were getting blown away on drugs And I got blown away on Jesus. She said, that's where I found my faith. Can I ask you a question this morning? What's blowing you away today? Are you blown away by the fact that Jesus is the supreme power. What I mean by that are, are you blown away by the fact that we have shown 
in this two-part sermon that the creator of the Old Testament is the Messiah and the Savior of the New Testament. And that means the God that spoke this universe into existence. Spoke. That, that set the stars and the moon and the axis of the earth and all of those things that allow us to live today. Are you blown away by the fact that when you feel that small, still voice, when you hear it like what Vice President Pence was talking about, are you blown away by the fact that that's the same voice that spoke this world into existence? Or do you get blown away by a coworker or by some friend that says, that junk that you're believing, that's a bunch of bull. Which one blows you away today? Or are, are, are you blown away by the fact that this God that spoke the universe into existence and put everything the way that it is chose to come to this earth and take on human form and live a perfect and sinless life for 33 and a half years because you were destined to spend eternity in hell? Are you so blown away by that, that, that you take the time to study his word and to, to pray? You know, you, you go back and you read everything that Billy Graham had to say and, and read his biography. And he says, there's two things that a Christian has to have in this world. Daily Bible reading and daily on their knees time before God. He said, that's the only thing that's going to change America. Are you so blown away that this God that could have left you dead in your trespasses and sin chose not to, that you spend just a little bit of time figuring out how to defend your faith by being in his word and praying on your knees before him and asking God to open your mind to the truth that he wants to speak to you today? Are you so blown away by a report that's published on ABC News that some scientists had to say, which publishes the same and supports the same kind of TV shows where someone would say, if a person says that they hear the voice of God, they must have a mental illness. What blows you away today? I'm blown away by the statement that we find about God the Son in our Baptist faith and message that says, Christ is the eternal Son of God. In his incarnation as Jesus Christ, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus perfectly revealed and did the will of God, taking upon himself human nature with its demands and necessities and identifying himself completely with mankind yet without sin. He honored the divine law by his personal obedience and in his substitutionary death on the cross, he made provision for the redemption of men from sin. 
He was raised from the dead with a glorified body and appeared to his disciples as the person who was with them before his crucifixion. He ascended into heaven and is now exalted at the right hand of God, where he is the one mediator, fully God, fully man, in whose person is affected the reconciliation between God and man. He will return in power and glory to judge the world and to consummate his redemptive mission. He now dwells in all believers as the living and ever-present Lord. So the question that's mandated that I ask you today is, what are you doing with Jesus Christ? God the Son. The only way, the only truth, the only life. And how that no one will go to the Father but through Him. You see, when we go through this and we go through God's word and we realize that what I thought I knew about God, what I thought I knew about Jesus wasn't truth. That's the awakening. That's the moment. That's the voice. And the Bible says, if I'll listen to that voice and confess with my mouth, the Lord Jesus Christ, and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, then I can be blown away for all eternity. Because Jesus Christ becomes my cornerstone. He becomes the substance on which everything that I do, everything that I say, every relationship that I have, every approach that I take, it's based on his divine truth. And I'll do nothing but please him and do everything that I can to bring honor and glory to him. So what are you doing with this Jesus? We're going to sing a, a song of worship together. And for those that have said, I put Jesus right where he belongs and I put him right into the place where I know that he ought to be. It's a time of just singing. It's a time of worship. It's a time of, of, of praising. For others, if there's something that's not right and that voice has spoken and there's something you need to do, that's the time to take action on that. If you're not sure what to do, you're not sure how to take that next step, I'll be right down here in the front. I'll be happy to visit with you. We have people that would love to take the Bible and share with you. You may just need to come and, and, and deal with a sin, deal with an issue that's in your life. Maybe you have something that's burdening you and you need to just give it up to Jesus so that he'll speak into that area in your life. I don't know. But it'd be a tragedy if we leave here today not doing what God's spoken to us because the same God that's speaking is the same God that spoke this universe into existence and is holding it together. So when I say amen, let's stand to our feet and have this time of being real and authentic with God. Father, we love you today and we thank you for these opportunities that you give us. We thank you that you, you love us so much that you give us your word and give us your truth so that we can, without a shadow of a doubt, understand who you are and what you've done for us. What you want to do with us and what we'll be doing for all of eternity. And I pray that Satan would not be allowed to steal any of that from us at this moment, but that we'll take that next step of whatever it is that you're asking us to do. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.